0: So I was thinking after last episode, what's with Wolverine and clowns?
1: I will answer your question with another question, which is, do you ever feel like you're coming into a joke after the punchline? Well, but it's a thing, though, right? No. Why would that be a thing?
0: I mean, Wolverine won. Logan, not Laura. Okay. Look, I'm just saying, Wolverine has dressed up as more than one clown.
1: I I suppose that is technically true.
0: There's the masquerade one we talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. And the murder circus one.
1: Right, right, from Wolverine and the X-Men.
0: What was his name? Uh, Obnoxio?
1: Revolto. Obnoxio was another guy entirely. He's only Wolverine on Earth 28857.
0: What's his deal?
1: Wolverine? Well, he's got a healing factor, Adaminium claws. Obnoxio. Well, he was the host of Marvel's Mad Magazine knockoff, Crazy.
0: Because I swear I know him from something with the X-Men.
1: Oh, well, the X-Men guest starred in the first and only issue of Obnoxio the Clown's own comic book.
0: That'd do it. What happened?
1: Xavier hired him to perform at at Kitty's surprise birthday party.
0: Sounds reasonable.
1: If you like that kind of thing. Anyway, Xavier got knocked out by an accident in Cerebro and Obnoxio got mixed up with a supervillain. As one does. Who could turn into any flavor of ice cream? What?! I'm J. Rachel Editing. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 92 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: And we promise this one is going to be way less depressing than last time. Oh,
1: hey, come on. We ended last time on a high note.
0: We did. There was that kids' book thing.
1: A high and a ridiculous note.
0: Yes. So what are we talking about this time?
1: Well, this time we are back to X Factor. And to an abrupt end of the very brief window of Cyclops Can Have Nice Things.
0: So it's not entirely upbeat, but, you know, it's happier than New Mutant 64.
1: I mean, it's also happier than much of the preceding X Factor.
0: Previously on X Factor, so there was the fall of the mutants.
1: Right. And the X Factor chapter, as you may recall, was the one relatively optimistic one. The X Men all died. They came back, but they did all die. And New Mutants lost Cypher, Doug Ramsey. X Factor, on the other hand, I mean, they've had their losses. Caliban has gone over to Apocalypse. And. Beast is rapidly losing his intellect as a result of an infection from the Horseman pestilence. But X-Factor has come out of this relatively well. They have gained the approval and adulation of New York. They have finally and for good ditched the Mutant Hunters cover. And they have gotten back Warren Worthington III, Angel who appeared to have killed himself. It turned out that Cameron Hodge had actually tried to kill him. Apocalypse had saved him and using a techno-organic virus and a bunch of other stuff turned him into the horseman of death which Iceman snapped Warren out of by, as a true student of Charles Xavier, faking his own death.
0: So uh, Death, who will pretty soon start going by Archangel, isn't with X-Factor exactly. He's just sort of swooping around New York being super emo and also blue and also having ways. Well, he's, he's not
1: Death anymore. He's officially quit that job. I think he's just Warren right now.
0: And X-Factor's old headquarters, which was where they were doing the whole mutant hunter thing, Ship, which is Apocalypse's ship, its name is Ship, just sort of fell on it, swishing it flat. So, you know, that's very much a definitive end to that era of the comic and of the team.
1: What else has happened? Let's see. Oh, Scott and Jean are officially together now.
0: Uh, Yes, Cyclops and Marvel Girl are a couple.
1: They totally did it.
0: They totally did it. And it was off camera, but presumably hot.
1: They're living in ship, and they are living in ship with the kids that they have amassed over the course of rescuing mutants. They've got Rusty as pyrokinetic. They've got Skids. She's got a force field, She's a former Morlock.
0: There's Artie, who is a pink kid who doesn't talk, but who can communicate in, like, pictures he can psychically create. Yeah, telepathic pictograms. There's Leech, who is also a former Morlock, who's got an anti-special power field which surrounds him.
1: And there's Boom Boom, who's cooler than everyone else put together.
0: Yes, and also Richter, who can make earthquakes and who is finally starting to develop more of a personality other than I am scared. Yay! Go Richter. There's also Ship. They are now living in Apocalypse's old ship, which he kind of gave to them as kind of a trap. It was very unclear. Apocalypse's plans are not always well thought out.
1: Well, Apocalypse has been in sort of a cascading chain of, that didn't work, but this next thing will trip you up, and then it doesn't.
0: It's kind of like from uh, Tim Burton's uh, Ed Wood movie. The worst movie you've ever seen. Well, my next one will be better.
1: That fits so neatly with, like, this middle manager apocalypse that we've been building up.
0: (laughs) I think it does. Like,
1: I can imagine him, too. Like, even with the Angora sweater and just the utter optimistic elation. God, Ed Wood is such a good movie.
0: It really is. It's my
1: favorite Burton movie by such a wide margin. Oh, yeah.
0: Although I like Big Fish, too.
1: But we digress.
0: So, yeah, that's basically where we find ourselves. The fall of the mutants has ended. X-Factor are celebrities. They're living in ship and things are kind of OK. I mean, you know, Warren Worthington III is a living weapon, but that's better than him being dead. And Beast has lost much of his intellect, which, well, OK, that just sucks. But other it, than it that, is
1: still also better than him being dead, though. True. So, yeah, we're
0: going to be covering X-Factor number 27 through 31 today. So let's dive in.
1: I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago that because of the way this happens to be timed around the holidays, January is basically going to be the Christmas issue month on Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, which brings us to X Factor number 27, Gifts. I feel like the X-Kids end up falling into the role of sort of Greek chorus to X-Factor a lot. They're the ones who provide commentary, who give continuity notes to the readers.
0: Now, I'm just imagining uh, a young teenage Statler and Waldorf having been rescued by X-Factor and just, "Oh, oh, oh, every time they do something dumb.
1: I can't picture them as teenagers.
0: Just picture them exactly as they are, but wearing like stereotypical 90s rad kid clothes and you've got it. Right? You got it? See, isn't it great?
1: Is there any way to convey it, just like blank blinking in audio form?
0: Uh, I can assure you, listeners, that's exactly what's happening right now. During the fall of the mutants, we didn't really see much of the kids. Now we do because Marvel Girl is bringing them to meet up with X-Factor on ship.
1: And the press, who are hungry for any news about the saviors of New York City, the residents of New York City's newest uh, celestial behemoth... And, you know, their teenage wards are super excited and the kids, you know, wave and and greet the press and are are all showing off their powers. Leech narrowly stops Boom Boom from, you know, exploding a large section of the press corps because why the hell not?
0: Oh, Tabitha, never change, but always be around Leech just in
1: case. X-Factor is enjoying a newly collegial relationship with the city of New York. They're doing stuff like helping repair the damage. Iceman replaces the fallen antenna of the Empire State Building with a beautiful spun ice Christmas tree.
0: Which I gotta say is kind of like when you have a live Christmas tree, like it's super pretty at first and then it just makes a horrible goddamn mess and you wish you never got it.
1: Yeah, that seems about right.
0: But yeah, it's actually super charming and they finish up with the interview and X-Factor is like, hey, any of you reporter guys want to take a telekinetic ride down to the ground? And And the
1: intrepid Trish Tilby is like, hell yeah!
0: Yeah, Trish Tilby, uh, to remind everyone, is the reporter who hounded X-Factor during their mutant hunter days and has now been hanging out a little bit more with them now that they have dropped the horrible, horrible
1: act. By hounded, you mean, you know, held accountable.
0: Well, you know, potato, potato. And- as she's traveling with X-Factor, she's sort of our, our window into the interactions of the team. One of the things she sees is Beast. We mentioned that he's lost much of his intellect due to uh, getting affected by Apocalypse's Horseman Pestilence. Being sort of the one in charge of the smaller children, in charge of Artie and Leech, and marveling at just sort of how much they're kids. I mean, they're the strangest looking of any of them, but they're just kids. They're just people.
1: Now, not everyone is having such a happy holiday. Warren is lurking gargoyle-like on our rooftop furious at the reveling in such a a miserable fallen world he is really really kind of milking the whole misery thing for all it's worth
0: oh he's just feeling blue
1: oh god you did that (laughs) yes miles 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 i want you to take a minute and think about what you have done here
0: i had been saving that one (laughs) so um (laughs) you blew it man oh man touche touche yeah that's right Okay, so things are all happy for like five minutes, which is to say five pages until Scott goes by one of those big walls of televisions in a television store that you only ever see in fiction and sees Madeline Pryor's farewell from Dallas from when she and the X-Men died in the fall of the mutants.
1: Now, as you may recall, the last time Scott saw Madeline, he was identifying her dead body in Anchorage.
0: Right. Because, you know, Mr. Sinister clones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well,
1: none of that has been revealed yet. Like, as far as he knew, Madeline's dead. Their kid is dead. And he and Gene have said, "Okay, you know, that's some closure. Now we can try to get a fresh start. But no, it turns out Madeline has been alive all this time. And not only is Madeline alive, but in her farewell address, you know, as the X-Men are about to sacrifice themselves in Dallas, she exhorts Scott to find their son.
0: Which means their son is still alive even if Madeline is double plus dead. And so, basically, all of the certainty, all of the closure Cyclops had, yeah, totally out the window. Sorry, Scott, your life remains really rough.
1: And not only that, but the X-Men are all dead. Like, they've all just been wiped out. Props to Iceman for being a little more on the ball than the rest of his team. You know, he sees the broadcast from Dallas and his response is...
0: They turned into a ball of light, right? Big deal. They've lived through worse than that. So have you. We all have. Besides, you should never believe anything you see on TV, really.
1: An Iceman would know from faking your own death. He was trained by the best.
0: Yeah, he was. But I think I really like that this happens because, you know, so much death is undone in comics. I mean, one of the members of X-Factor famously died and not exactly came back from the dead. So for Iceman, who's the one person that was not there for that death, he wasn't there to see the tragedy on the blue area of the moon when Dark Phoenix died. For him, it's just a story and it worked out okay, right? So of course he would react this way.
1: Either that or he knows that he's in a revolving door superhero comic.
0: Kicking the fourth wall style.
1: Iceman, I will point out, has also in his own miniseries been written out of existence and had to basically recreate himself from scratch. So I could see him taking a somewhat cavalier attitude towards life and death at this point.
0: Dude, that series was so weird. Oh my god. But anyway, so um, the characters continue doing their thing. Scott and Jean, basically, for each of their own reasons, leave. Scott just can't really process what's going on. Jean starts to realize, wait a minute, I never told my parents I was alive when I came back. That's not cool.
1: Yeah, maybe you should do that, Jean. Jesus Christ. But,
0: uh, you know, it's realistic. It makes sense because this whole resurrection, it's almost been dreamlike. You know, they've just been living the life they wanted to live when they were teenagers and they've kind of forgotten about some of the rest of the world.
1: Well, and to be fair, they have been extremely, extremely busy. They've had a lot on their plate. I want to point out really quickly with regards to Jean that she does something that I don't think we've ever seen anyone do at the Gray's house before. What's that? She knocks.
0: She doesn't just either break in or smash down the door. Good she point. does not.
1: She actually knocks on the door like a civilized human being.
0: I kind of can imagine the greys inside hearing the knock on the door and just being like, what's that sound? What, what would make a sound like that? I don't understand.
1: Well, and Gina is so proud because this is the story where X-Factor learns to use doors.
0: Oh, man. It only took them 20-something issues. I'm so proud. Right? But yeah, she does, in fact, go and meet up with her parents and be like, hey, here's the deal. There's sort of a theme with this era of X-Factor, which is transparency. After so much deception for the first many issues of it, everybody just comes clean. And that's exactly what Jean Grey does here. And so it's kind of awesome. Now, what she finds out at the same time is that her sister, Sarah, is still missing.
1: Right. And she tells her parents she's going to find Sarah. And all of the missing pieces around X-Factor are going to tie in very closely pretty soon. For now, though, we're back to the city. And to Beast, the X-Factor is watching Trish on TV talking about how noble X-Factor has been their noble sacrifices. X-Factor has lost their home. Their kids have lost out on Christmas. One of the members has sacrificed their intellect.
0: And man, the way Hank responds to this, because, you know, realistically, the public wouldn't really know which member of X-Factor. They wouldn't know any details about their personalities before or after. But Beast doesn't get that. He's lost so much of his intelligence that he's sort of seeing the world in a childlike fashion. He's not thinking about that context. And she told him, the whole world, how dumb I got. I thought Trish was my friend.
1: Trish's broadcast does hit home in one way, though, which is the comment about the kids and Christmas. And New York rallies. Delivery trucks keep showing up at ship to drop off more and more and more and more presents.
0: And, you know, the kids are really happy, but then there's Leach, who's crying. And when asked why, says,
1: Leach got lots. Sick kids got nothing.
0: Man, you can really tell that Leech is a character that has largely appeared in Power Pack because he's got the adorable, endearing Moppet thing down cold. It's great.
1: Right. Secondary mutation, eternal Moppet.
0: And so they're like, okay, well, what are we going to do about this? Well, hey, we passed by a children's hospital. Maybe those sick kids would like these presents. Maybe we can just give them to them. Yeah,
1: this mountain of gifts that random strangers have sent us.
0: And, you know, they have to sort of convince Boom Boom because, well, she's Boom Boom, but they eventually do.
1: And they head off and they are intercepted by muggers led by a dude named Snake, who may or may not be Solid Snake from Metal Gear Solid. I choose to believe that he is. Snake! Just knocking over kids for Christmas presents.
0: Oh man, going around in a cardboard box. and then. Solid just...
1: Snake is a dick, okay?
0: He kind of is, yeah. But I actually looked it up. This is not the same gang that was in the X-Factor issue where Rusty got mugged in Central Park. This gang is led by Snake. That gang was led by Blade. Wait,
1: wait, Blade?
0: Not that Blade, just a different Blade.
1: I'd like to think that Blade and Snake have some kind of, like, forbidden romance going on.
0: I think they do. Oh, man, it's like the Capulets and the Montagues all over again, except different in many ways.
1: It's like West Side Story, but the main characters are named Blade and Snake.
0: I just met a gangster named Snake. I love this plan. This is good. So, just as they're about to rumble... They are, or possibly have a dance-off if it's a West Side Story.
1: It's definitely going to be a dance-off.
0: Okay, well, anyway, they're rescued- That's how they
1: solve altercations in New York.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, They are rescued by Iceman and Marvel Girl who chase Snake and the Muggers away. And, man, like, Boom Boom basically throws Leech under the bus saying it was his fault.
1: My idea. Leech, not sorry.
0: And, like, Iceman is just cracking the hell up, trying to still be a responsible grown-up.
1: Gene is trying really hard to be the adult here.
0: Shape up, Bobby, or I'll drop you. I mean it. We're supposed to be mad. Man, I love how much Gene is like the team mom right here.
1: Cyclops is the shitty absentee dad.
0: Your stepdad's not mean, he's just adjusting. Oh my
1: god. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like actually Death of Smoochie segues really, really elegantly into this era of X Factor. God,
0: it kind of does. Oh man, Beast could even be like that one big heavy mobster dude who loves Smoochie. Aww. This is getting sad.
1: (laughs) Man, I'm not going to be able to get that out of my head
0: now. Now I'm just seeing Apocalypse as Rainbow Randolph. (laughs) Works surprisingly well, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, actually, it really does. So anyway. Well, we just broke X Factor forever. So one interesting
0: thing um, art-wise is that during all of this, like from Jean going home forward, there's been a long horizontal panel at the bottom of every page.
1: And now, as you may recall, there was a sequence like this actually during Fall of the Mutants as well, when Caliban was deliberating going over to Apocalypse. And this is another Apocalypse-connected thing. What we're seeing is Ship gradually repairing itself. You know, machines clicking together, traps setting.
0: Now, Apocalypse is aware of this. He's watching on a monitor from elsewhere. Remember, Ship was like his ship. And I really love this scene because it's him and Famine and Warren Caliban all raising glasses as they watch it.
2: It is finished. My ship has repaired itself and is as good as new. Better. Improved. (laughs) Improved indeed. It is my gift to X-Factor. A gift they have earned in full measure. Let us tempt them now to open that gift and partake of its wonders in full measure. But beware, X-Factor, beneath that shiny foil. I think I hear it ticking. Merry Christmas, X-Factor. It may be your
1: last. So we know what's going in the Christmas cards next year.
2: I think Merry Christmas, X-Factor,
0: it may be your last is probably the greatest dialogue this comic has ever seen.
1: So we super have to get Oscar Isaac on now. We have to get him to do this.
0: We have to make him say that line. I completely agree. (laughs) See if he can force it into the movie. So, yeah, the kids do get all the presents to all the other children in the hospital, and it's super heartwarming and awesome. But that whole thing with a ship waking up, that continues to
1: occur. Which brings us to X Factor number 28, Countdown. In reference, in fact, to that, you know, ticking under the foil thing. Now, in the Hudson River, ship rams a tugboat. No one's quite sure how, whether it was the tugboat that collided with ship or whether ship hit it. What everyone is agreed on is that ship is starting to look larger than it was before. And as the kids are going to investigate, ship swallows them whole and then attacks Iceman and Marvel Girl as they're rescuing the sailors from the tug.
0: So as all this is going on, we come back to a trend we've seen before, which is Cyclops Trying to do the right thing with his family in some way and getting called back to doing superhero stuff.
1: At least he's not hallucinating this time.
0: Yeah. So he's trying to fly to Dallas, you know, to find his son... And he sees news reports of what's going on and just sort of sighs and shrugs and has the cops help him in a chopper go to help Iceman and Marvel Girl. Beast, by the way, is still inside the ship. Iceman froze him there by his feet so he wouldn't use his strength in the fight and thus lose more intellect.
1: But then Beast breaks out and does anyway. Cyclops does get a totally awesome hero moment of, like, descending from a helicopter on a rope just being badass, though.
0: I feel like he's really practiced this kind of thing. I mean, he's not exactly vain, but he believes strongly in doing things right, and that includes making an entrance.
1: (laughs) After the battle, Marvel Girl takes him to task for once again running off by himself instead of turning to the team.
0: I have relatives missing too, Scott. I feel guilty because I wasn't there to save them like you do. But Scott, you left, insisted on treating it like it's your problem alone. You'll walk away again when this is over. I don't want to get used to to counting on you.
1: You were in trouble. I came. What further proof do you need that you can count on me?
0: Yep, five pages of happiness, Scott and Jean. That's what you got.
1: Yeah, but they're going to kind of get their shit together. Like, they are going to end up going off and looking for their families. But when they do, they're actually going to do it together.
0: Yeah, which is pretty rad because Scott and Jean together are pretty goddamn unstoppable.
1: More on that later. But for now, back to the kids who are have all been dropped in small compartments inside ship.
0: I'm kind of wondering, like, what the goal of that was. Like, he was just sort of keeping them in little jars? Like, what's going on? Is he going to have a creepy mad science lair?
1: Yeah, maybe. Bug collection?
0: Uh, maybe. But anyway, uh, Boom Boom manages to explode them out, freeing them. But it turns out Artie's not around. He does, thankfully, guide them to where he is using his, you know, manifesting pink psychic images power.
1: And he takes them to what turns out to be the brain of the ship. And the brain is horribly shackled. It's got all of these cables and and plugs stuck into it.
0: It kind of looks like the clitoris from the South Park movie. It's like this big pink glowing dome.
1: God fucking damn it, Miles.
0: I'm not wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) So anyway... Already uses, like, this psychic Pictionary to kind of show them what the deal is about it being shackled and, you know, about there being an external force imposed on it. So they talk about who should use their powers to free the brain, and Rusty volunteers and says he thinks his would work best, and I love Boom Boom's reaction here.
1: All right, then you do it if you're so great. Only don't blame me if the whole ship bursts into flames and we die in a raging inferno.
0: Tabitha Smith never change. But again, spend time around Leech so that he can shut down your powers just in case.
1: Yes, please. X-Factor is outside, and they are, meanwhile, working to free the kids with help from Ship, because Ship can't actually do anything different, but Ship can communicate to X-Factor about what's going on.
0: Yeah, Ship, now that it's been freed of those weird cable things, is actually talking, and is very polite and very helpful, and also very counting down, which cannot be a good sign, saying that Apocalypse is making it do a thing with implanted code.
1: After the fight is over, Scott and Jean return to their default mode, which is working out personal issues in the middle of team conflicts. Jean, X-Factor, we're self-appointed guardians of the mutant race. It seems wrong to divert its energy from my personal needs.
0: I know, Scott, but we're also a family. Don't you feel it?
1: I feel it, and you you know I've never been much good at families.
0: Maybe you've never given yourself a chance.
1: And then ship pops in. I would be a part of your family if you will have me. I will be your home and will be yours to command.
0: I love you, Ship.
1: Man, I love Ship. I want Ship to come be my best friend. Sorry, Chris, you've been displaced by Ship.
0: I, I kind of feel like X-Factor should get Ship like an enormous basket bed that says Ship on it.
1: Oh, man, Pet Ship. It would yes. have to be
0: really big, though. Yes. Because it's a skyscraper. It sized. would be really big. Yes. It
1: would be enormous. It would take up a large portion of New York.
0: So all of this being done, Cyclops does what Cyclops does in this era, which is to call a press conference.
1: Right, because again, X Factor is actually about transparency and communication, and they've just had their massive skyscraper-sized ship, you know, turn hostile briefly, and they're trying to actually be responsible and communicate to New York that, no, it's okay, we've got a handle on it for now.
0: So we have a couple of meanwhiles here, one of which is Apocalypse once again watching because he loves the X-Factor channel before he goes off to transform Caliban into his new Horseman of Apocalypse form, which we don't see for a while.
1: And we've also got to lead into our next story, which is a trendy singles bar where a woman um, is talking about how romantic it is, how handsome X-Factor's men are, and she takes home a guy who says that he wants powers. This is infectious. She is going to be the villain of the next arc.
0: Yeah, and she is a controversial character.
1: Is she controversial? I don't think anyone actually likes her.
0: Uh, Perhaps that's true.
1: I mean, I'm sure there's somebody. Someone is typing, I'm actually, like, right this very second. Yeah. Preemptively, as I record this even a week and a half out, like, they don't even know why.
0: And over the next few issues, we learn a lot about Infectia. Uh, What we see first is her taking the aforementioned dude home, who's like, well, if I had powers, I would give you that ship, because she talks about wanting it. Yeah,
1: she really wants ship, and she's never really super clear on why she wants ship. But, I mean, I kind of get that. Like, ship is super awesome. Ship is great.
0: Why would I not want the thing? The thing is great. I want the thing. Give me the thing. And so what she does to convince this dude to give her the thing is to kiss him and turn him into a giant monster by doing so. Who's so overjoyed to be a giant monster and just to have so much power that he lifts a big piece of furniture, burns himself out, and crumbles to dust immediately. Because here's the deal. Infectia can kiss people and turn them into monsters, but they're monsters with a limited lifespan. Once they use a certain amount of strength, they just sort of die and disappear and turn into dust.
1: On one hand, this feels like a super throwaway story to me. On the other hand, there's probably a graduate thesis about agency and feminine sexuality and patriarchal culture, like, embedded in these three issues.
0: I think there kind of is. And there is also a lot of really good character work. That's something I think you see in a lot of Louis Simonson's stories, both New Mutants and X-Factor, is that even when the A-plot, even when the story is only kind of okay, like, say, Bird Boy or Gossamer and New Mutants, in fact, you hear that sort of thing, the B-plot, the character work, is always super solid. Yeah,
1: so this is basically X-Men Evolution Syndrome.
0: Kind of the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right. And so, as all this is going on in our other part of the A-plot, X-Factor has called another press conference like they just had one at the end of the last issue and now they're having one in this issue like i kind of feel like this might be
1: the same press conference
0: no no it's totally a different one i kind of feel like they should hire pamela winchell as their director of emergency press conferences if she's not too busy on night fail
1: wow deep cut
0: you know, everyone listens to Night Vale. Certainly more people than listen to us. That's fair. And so the pier that they're on, right next to Ship, which is kind of in the ocean, collapses and they immediately blame the mutants until Ship pulls them out of the water, starts carefully and quickly reconstructing the pier under them and scolds them because they knew it was condemned. Ship is just so sort of prim and proper, like I think of Ship as this proper British nanny who's never rude exactly, but is certainly all about telling you exactly why what you did is wrong in a very non-judgmental but clear way.
1: Well, Ship is occasionally rude and the reporters however are extremely rude and we we get them you know mobbing marvel girl with questions about her hair and how she dresses um you know who designed her uniforms you know the more things change man
0: yeah seriously
1: and beast gets more and more flustered and finally x factor retreats onto ship and ship closes the door behind them
0: and the reporters of course can't follow because only mutants can enter ship that's how apocalypse designed it slash how it worked when he got it from the celestials but ship is still very much ship
1: and were you a card-carrying mutant, Mr. Murphy, you would still be excluded. I saw what you wrote about me in the New York Post.
0: <laughs> I love it. And in fact, she sees ship leaving because ship is going away so that there's not any more damage. Uh, ship is going to get further away from the mainland. And is super disappointed and uses this disappointment to bring another chauvinist jerk with her. I gotta say, like, she tends to choose people, not always, but she tends to choose men who are just, like, super sleazy. And so I don't feel as bad about them turning into monsters and dying as I might.
1: The whole infectious story is so exaggerated and so cartoonish and so sort of almost self-satirizing that I have trouble taking it seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of cool things, though. I think when we were talking earlier this morning, you mentioned that you kind of like the fact that she is, in addition to being this coquettish, manipulative, stereotypical whatever, she's also a scientist. I mean, she knows how her powers work. She's got a lab facility she uses to help make these monsters, to be her servants.
1: Yeah, she's a geneticist. And she's one of several mutants who we're going to see more and more of, I think, actually specifically in X Factor, whose powers are contingent on their understanding of the underlying science.
0: So, of course, it wouldn't be X-Factor unless we kept going back to Scott and Jean drama. So let's go ahead and do that.
1: Right. So uh, Scott is completely guilt ridden because that's what he does, you know, because he keeps on looking at Jean and saying, oh, my God, we were hooking up in ship wild Madeline, who I thought was dead and had mourned for, was actually alive, but then she actually died. So this mean, is like just a massive bait and switch on multiple levels. I think that
0: would mess pretty much anybody up right there. So I can't really blame the dude for being down.
1: And Jean has no time for this bullshit.
0: Yeah, she says that that's dumb. I mean, he didn't know, so he shouldn't be to blame for it. And they are going to go and look for his son together after all. I wish you the best. I love you. If she loved you, if she loved her baby, why didn't she contact you sensibly and let you know where he is? He could be anywhere in the world. She's such a... a hypocrite. She makes me sick. You make me sick.
1: I mean, Jean is kind of wrong and she's kind of being horrible, but A, she's making some valid points, but B, I actually really appreciate that we're finally getting St. Jean being petty and human because she is, I mean, you, you described her as the team mom earlier and the extent to which she is the sensible adult who holds things together in the early run of X Factor is kind of frustrating to me. Like, I like it when she gets more room to be flawed and to be imperfect and to be wrong.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the way she's handling this, I think, also contributes to the storytelling in a very good show-don't-tell way. She's trying to reconstruct her relationship with Scott Summers, who's a pretty messed-up dude who's made some very bad decisions. So for me, I mean, she says that Scott makes her sick too, but it's clear that most of her anger is directed at Madeline because that's safer. You know, if she's trying to be in a healthy relationship with Scott, that anger needs to go somewhere else, somewhere at least it's not destructive, even if it's not constructive. And hey, look at the other woman. Look at the person who's not here and, in fact, is dead. It seems, you know, a safer way to do it, subconsciously, I would imagine.
1: But they don't have time to hash through that because infectious antibodies, which are what she names the men she mutates, attack ship.
0: And, you know, they're really badass and a little silly (laughs) because they still. A little silly. Well, you know, they just act like normal people. Like, they don't seem to care that they're monsters, they don't seem to mind. Like, at one point, X Factor is attacking one of them, and the other's like,
2: Hey, back off, friend's my main man.
0: Which is not how giant monsters typically talk, as far as I know. Yeah,
2: like,
1: they're just some guys.
0: Yeah. With enormous teeth. But they are some guys who then crumble to dust because, again, only so much energy. So, Infectia, who much of her role in the first part of the story is just to watch, figures, All right, this clearly isn't working. X Factor is too powerful for my antibodies to take ship from them. I know. And she looks at Iceman.
1: Wah, wah, barking up the wrong tree there.
0: Well, yes, but we won't know that for many, many years. Yeah,
1: I'm barking up the overcompensating tree at this point.
0: So what's Iceman up to right now?
1: Iceman is, with the kids, playing a game of volleyball.
0: Which is really great. Like, Ship pulls out a racquetball, volleyball net kind of thing, and they're uh, tossing around one of Boom Boom's time bombs using their powers to toss it back and forth, which actually sounds really fun and also dangerous.
1: Make good choices, X-Factor. And in fact,
0: that's basically what Cyclops and Marvel Girl tell them, because they're like, dude, Iceman, what are you doing? These kids need a competent adult, and you are totally not being that. And this arc does do a really good job of portraying Bobby as not childlike exactly, But certainly too happy-go-lucky for his own good. Like, he just doesn't seem to be taking being a member of X-Factor, being a mutant, being whatever seriously. And part of that, I think, is because he doesn't have to right now. X-Factor are celebrities. They're beloved. And he's eating that up. He loves not being horribly oppressed and depressed.
1: At the same time, I would argue that Iceman, you know, we've talked about him as kind of the heart of the original five. And I think in X-Factor, that's a role that he takes on, but one that he's also kind of wedged into. Because Scott and Jean are embroiled in their Scott and Jean drama. Beast has his own thing going. He's, you know, gradually losing his mind. Warren is off being this brooding monster. And Iceman is kind of the only member of the team who's any reasonable definition of okay right now.
0: You know, you're kind of right. I mean, any kind of a social group is going to have certain defined roles. And that's the one that needs to be filled. That's the one that's left in some ways.
1: Right. And, you know, this is something that I think came up in the conversations around him coming out. Iceman is the member of the team who's got one foot in normal at any given time, who lets or appears to let all of the weird shit they deal with just kind of roll off his back. And some of that means that, you know, he, he has this sort of teeth-gritted, determined giddiness.
0: Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's what we see as he takes Beast off of ship to the Hard Rock Cafe to go meet some ladies. Again, they don't know, but we didn't either at this point. He leaves the kids in the care of ship, and I love this part right here.
1: I will prepare them a nutritious dinner, and then we shall view a film explicating the political situation in Central America.
0: And then, uh, as Beast and Iceman leave to the kids.
1: Now, may I suggest chili burgers with French fries and apple pie for dessert?
0: And Richter, again, did I mention he's getting more of a personality now? Responds Sounds great! Man, I can't wait to see Rambo Nuke's commando in Nicaragua on a 20 foot screen! Okay. I want to watch that movie. That sounds amazing.
1: My entire knowledge of Rambo comes from parodies. So
0: actually the, um, the part in UHF where he just sort of keeps looking at famous landmarks and they just explode. That's kind of accurate. It's only a little bit exaggerated. Okay, then. It's, it's just made of pure testosterone. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So it's
1: all, all beer bongs and pay-per-view for the kids back at home.
0: Yes, that's right. Ship is like the cool aunt, I think.
1: So what are Bobby and Hank up to?
0: Well, Iceman is enjoying his fame by being the belle of the ball at the Hard Rock Cafe. Beast feels really out of place because he's not good at talking to people at this point. So he leaves, which leaves Bobby alone, who is then found by Infectia, who does her like super seductive, flattering thing and gets on his good side immediately.
1: Before going after Iceman, Infectia managed to seduce a cop and transform him into a monster. She orders him to attack and then runs to Iceman for help, which is actually a pretty good setup.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, Iceman gets to be the conquering hero after he disintegrates said cop. Well, Beast helps him out, and he's in Infectia's pocket. He's wrapped around her little finger. And, god, the way she talks, again, it's a little painful. This archetype is really rough to read,
1: but it's effective, You're the reason I'm here, so handsome and heroic and generous. You know, ever since I was a little girl, I always dreamed I'd have a ship just like this one. Darling, darling Bobby, don't talk anymore. Don't even think, just kiss me here in the moonlight.
0: Which leads, now that they're back on ship, to probably my favorite part of this arc. So X-Factor, it's always been a soap opera, right? But it's also kind of got this sitcom sense of humor that I really appreciate.
1: Bobby is utterly taken in by infectious charm, but literally everyone else gets that she's bad news, starting with Beast, who tries to talk him out of going with her. And the kids recognize it as well. And that's why X-Factor 31 opens with Bobby and Infectia about to kiss and a time bomb blowing up in their faces.
0: And I love this because Bobby's chasing down Boom Boom. Get back here, you mutant menace, and face the consequences! And as he's chasing after her on his ice slide, he passes by Leech, so his ice slide just collapses, and he falls on his face on the ground. And this just keeps happening.
1: Hank explains to the kids that he's worried that Infectia's bad news, and they agree that they're totally going to help him cockblock Iceman, because if there's anything that teenagers love, it's to screw over adults.
0: Yeah, and so this just like keeps happening as they all use their powers. Like, Skids comes up as these two are about to kiss and taps Bobby on the shoulder, which encases him in a force field, and Infectia slides off. And, you know, Richter is practicing his powers and, you know, shakes them apart as they're about to kiss.
1: And they start trying to come up with excuses, but they just sort of run with it afterwards. So at one point they're about to kiss and there's just an enormous gout of flame and they don't even bother trying to explain it. Like, no
0: explanation. And then again they try and this giant pink Tyrannosaurus starts chasing after them, one of Artie's psychic projections. Like, it just gets more and more ridiculous. I love it. And yeah, Iceman's response as this happens, A2, Artie, it's great.
1: Infectia has had enough of this, so she decides that, no, no, they're going to do this right. So she beckons Iceman off to the cabins to go to bed, figures they can lock the kids out.
0: And Ship just slams the door shut in between them, saying that, hey, she said she wanted to get some rest, right? Now, Infectia realizes that everybody's against her, except for Bobby, who she's completely ensnared. So she actually kisses Ship and tells it that, you know, her power lets her control people. That, of course, is one of Ship's greatest fears, having been enslaved by Apocalypse for who knows how long. So it lets them get off of itself in a little starfighter spaceship transport thing to go back to her lab.
1: And she gets Bobby back. And once she's got Bobby back in her lab, she tosses him into power blocking restraints. Ship and Beast, meanwhile, are just sick with worry. They're both ashamed that they haven't been able to stop her and they decide they're going to team up and save Iceman.
0: Man, when Beast gets there, I love this because it's like she has a spare human just waiting to kiss to turn into a monster, who's a postman, who then proceeds as he's fighting Beast to do the, like, neither rain nor shine thing.
1: And there's a footnote, too.
0: Yeah, saying that that's an inscription from something Herodotus wrote in Greek history, which... The sense of humor of this book is so sideways in a way that I totally dig.
1: Beast fights and blows up the monster, and leans in to kiss Iceman, but Beast jumps between them.
0: Right, it's like what Cypher did for Wolfsbane with a bullet, except it's a lady's lips instead of a bullet, which is a different thing.
1: And instead of killing him, it turns him blue.
0: Yeah, we see Beast as he kind of falls into unconsciousness? Death? We don't know. Morph briefly back and forth between his old blue furry form and his current flesh one, and Iceman's just devastated. Beast, no! Hank, forgive me, you tried to warn me, I wouldn't listen. Yeah, sorry to end it on a cliffhanger, but we should talk about some of the other stuff because Louise Simonson, like Chris Claremont, usually has about half a dozen plot lines going on at any given time. So what's going on in some of those plot lines, Jay?
1: Well, let's see. We've got three other threads going on. The first one is Warren, formerly Death, soon to be Archangel, and he is trying to pick up some of the threads of his former life. Specifically, he's looking for Candy Southern, who was his girlfriend. They parted on awkward terms immediately before he lost his wings and then apparently attempted to kill himself. But she is missing, and the only evidence he finds in her apartment is a letter from Trish Tilby, who the readers know has been using her as a source in the X Factor Exposé, and a dart on the ground tipped with some kind of narcotic.
0: Now, I really love this page, because the way Walter Simonson draws it, Warren's in almost every panel, but we don't really see him unobstructed. Like, we'll just see an eye, or a hand, or a foot, or a silhouette. And for me, this is great symbolism, because Warren's ashamed of what he is right now. He's ashamed to be this monster. Candy Southern was a person he interacted with with all of his humanity. So he hasn't really gotten used to the fact that he needs to be himself around his old life, around her or around anything. Well,
1: and he doesn't really have a sense of self at this point. I mean, we're seeing him only in fragments because who he is is really fragmentary at this point as well. He's only got one lead in terms of what happened to Candy, and that's Trish Tilby. He goes and grabs her manages to accidentally hit Beast with the fluchettes from his wings, which he has limited control over, and you know, Trish tells him that all she knows is that Candy is missing and that Cameron Hodge apparently died in a plane crash in the North Atlantic. As you may recall, that happened in New Mutants 60 in the Fall of the mutant storyline, and, spoiler, totally fake.
0: Yeah, Cameron Hodge is exceedingly hard to kill. All of this is being watched in Chicago by a bunch of dudes in hoods who are clearly part of the right, Cameron Hodge's old organization. And they say something about delaying the termination order, presumably for Candy Southern, until things get a little more worked out with this blue winged dude. So that's one thing. Another thing is Dallas, which is where Scott and Jean flew off to to look for Scott's son.
1: So Scott and Jean get to Dallas and immediately clash with Freedom Force. As they're fighting, Scott also realizes that, oh, not only is his wife dead and his kid missing, but oh yeah, his brother just totally died in Dallas too. It's been a rough week.
0: Because Havoc was, of course, a member of the X-Men at this time. Now, it's interesting here that he says he doesn't feel anything, and he starts to get all guilty and wonders if he ever really felt anything for Alex in the first place.
1: Which is actually exactly what happened the first time he thought that Gene died in the volcano base. Like, this is how he deals with shit, is just by completely blanking out.
0: So I know this narrative convention makes no sense whatsoever to just like know whether someone is alive or dead emotionally, but I kind of love it anyway, so I'm okay with that.
1: You know, it makes sense when you run around with enough telepaths.
0: And speaking of not exactly telepaths, but precogs, eventually the fight finishes after Cyclops and Marvel Girl handily defeat Freedom Force, which, you know, I know Freedom Force always gives the X-Men a run for their money, but this is Cyclops and Marvel Girl. They are like the two best of the X-Men.
1: They are the OGs. They are Xavier's original students, and they are that competent especially especially Marvel girl at this point she is so powerful I actually I feel really good about them being able to do this like this reads fairly true to me
0: totally but yeah the fight eventually stops as it often does and destiny who when written by Louise Simonson comes off as a lot weirder and creepier which I kind of like starts having kind of a vision or you know a precognitive flash I see a tiny coffin cold so cold freezing mists a vision no it's real Your son lives, but there are bars on the windows. The threads of his future are tangled in your past.
1: (laughs) Ah, God, if you only knew. If anyone only knew, because, again, the entire cable thing is going to be a massive retcon years and years and years from now.
0: She's mainly referring to some of the stuff that's going to lead into Inferno, which, you know, is also, to be fair, a pretty big deal.
1: Which brings us to the final of the three separate plot threads that we've been tracking. This is going down in Nebraska, and we've got exactly one previous story hook for Nebraska, and that is that it is where the orphanage where Scott grew up is.
0: It's kind of hard to tell what the hell's going on here. There are some nursery rhymes and the captions in the background, and we see this weird egg-like robot creature. And a big intimidating dude rising out of some kind of steaming fluid and picking up some kind of a gun. And it's all very scary and ominous with mostly red in the background.
1: And he descends the the guy with the gun into a house, goes past the nursery. Apparently an off-panel murders parents and then picks up the kids and leaves.
0: As Rockabye Baby is captioned in the background and Cradle and All is captioned over blam 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 blam. Now, this is Nanny and the Orphan Maker. We're going to learn a lot more about them. They are super weird characters, but I kind of love them.
1: That wraps up this arc of X-Factor. Meanwhile, you've got questions.
0: An anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, Would you care to comment on the LEGO Marvel Super Heroes video game and how it represents the X-Men?
1: I would. I would like to comment that it is delightful and you should all play it. Actually, um, we get that question a lot, and most of the time it is from people who are upset that Cyclops' powers generate heat in the game, which they do. Now, I'd like to point out for everyone who is concerned about this, this doesn't actually constitute a continuity error because the Lego games take place on Earth 13122, where obviously things are a little different from the Marvel Universe you're used to. For instance, everything is made of Lego. And Cyclops' powers generate heat.
0: There you go. So the things I really like about this game, because so Jay and I have actually played a ton of this game. We, we, we have played, played through so it. much
1: of it. Yeah, we, we end up we got to the point where we could unlock Cyclops and Beta Ray Bill and then we just played as them for the rest of the game. <laughs> Pretty much.
0: Awesome. So some of my favorite parts are when you're in the X-Mansion, and you get outside and you see Colossus and Juggernaut just punching each other back and forth continually until you advance the plot, which is a gag I never get sick of. There's actually a really similar gag like that in the movie Orgasmo, which is great. And I also uh, really love the polite but confused Sentinel on the front lawn, where if you're not playing as a mutant, he's just like, are you a mutant? Have you seen any mutants? And it's great.
1: If you are a mutant, of course he attacks you. All right, so Mount Ninja asks on Tumblr, what would be your lineup of X-Men for a band? Style of music is up to you, ska, metal, Oasis cover band, etc.? Hard mode, no Dazzler.
0: No Dazzler. Okay, so I'm thinking you would get Warpath, X-23, Longshot, Richter, and a surprisingly well-versed and passionate Cypher as, like, a Norse troll melodic death metal band, which they would take it really seriously. Like, they do a ton of mythological research, and it would be super heavy and super dark, and they would dress up in, like, bracers and pauldrons and Viking stuff, and Cypher would try to grow a beard, but he couldn't really. And then, like, Mirage, who actually is a Valkyrie and has been to Asgard, would just disapprove on, like, every level possible.
1: you've really thought this through i'm just saying all right so i'm gonna go with warlock in danger as an experimental electronica duo Um, (laughs) and so the way i'm seeing this play out is their music proves either unfathomable or deadly to most organic life forms and doug ramsey ends up being their entire fan base because he's the only person who really gets what they're going for
0: (laughs) that is awesome
1: So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and that is made possible by our Rad Rad Patreon subscribers. Some of those levels of support come with thanks from a number of fictional characters. So I believe I am turning this one over to Apocalypse.
2: X Factor and their young charges may think they have won, but they are as children compared to my careful schemes. Though Kevin Veldman believes he has befriended my celestial ship, and Mike Miller rests easy now that he has escaped becoming my new horseman of pestilence, know that all goes according to my grand plan, and soon shall triumph the will of Apocalypse!
1: Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yaut, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast.
0: New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher and at rachelandmiles.com.
1: Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of additional content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps and much more.
0: Our show, like we mentioned, is totally listener-supported, and it's ad-free. That is all made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a subscriber and help us do what we do and pay rent and stuff, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com.
1: Next week, Magma has the absolute worst taste in men. We flash back 40 issues to space.
0: And Ilyana Rasputin decides that the best cure for grief is sweet, sweet murder.